So what I want to do today is to discuss with you background. This is background. And it's background of two or three subjects that uh, perhaps you're not familiar with yet. But it's something that is going to make the, the narrative of the Book of Ruth much deeper and it's going to have it resonate on, on different levels. There's a mitzvah in the Torah called peah. The word peah in Hebrew means corner. And if you look on the first sheet of the booklet, verse number 9, we have the following mitzvah. It's in um, the Torah portion, not for this coming week, but in a couple of weeks. The portion of Kedoshim. So the Pasuk says in verse 9, When you reap your land's harvest, this is talking about a person who owns a field in Israel and it's practically applicable during the time when the Beit HaMikdash, when the Holy Temple was standing, when the majority of the world's Jews were living in Israel. So when you harvest your field, Don't harvest completely to the edges of your property, but rather... Leave the corners without harvesting them. So what you do is you draw kind of an imaginary line of the four corners and you, the owner, you don't harvest. And the Torah explains that that should be left for those who are in need. So the poor, whoever doesn't have, they come and they harvest themselves in those areas of your field, and that's how they are provided for. It's kind of a strange system, because if you just think about it for a moment, if you want to have a society. So every society has got to figure out how do we take care of those people that are in need. In every society, there will be people in need who cannot afford, who do not have, who need help in every society. So the question is, how do we provide for them? If you were to ask me, just thinking about it from the top of my head, I would say that um, this does not sound like such a good system. Because what you're going to have is lots and lots of people coming into the field taking their own stuff. Have, I'm sure you have been, you, your children, your grandchildren, apple picking. Did you ever go apple picking? Yeah, okay. It's a great time. I went with my grandchildren a few months ago. It's a great time. When you go you see something interesting. You see lots of apples on the ground. There's a lot of waste. Now, why, why are there so many apples on the ground? Well, you know why. Because I'll tell you why. You know, I was there with my grandson. He's seven years old, so he would pick an apple, he would take a bite, and he'd throw it on the ground. He'd pick another apple, and take a bite, and throw it on the ground. So, all right. 
So he's having a great time. And the truth is, we have to pay an entrance fee, so we probably ended up paying more for those apples than just getting them from the store, which is fine. It was great entertainment. But it's not a very efficient way to harvest, because also my grandson can't reach to the... He can only reach to the bottom. So if you look at those trees, all the apples on top, they're still there because people aren't climbing up to the top. The professional workers, of course, are going to climb and harvest all the apples. But when you just let anybody in to collect for themselves, it's going to be very, very inefficient. So the question is, if you need to provide for the poor, and there are always more poor than there are resources to provide for them, why in the world would you let them come in and take it themselves? Why don't you instead... Let the owner have his own trained professional workers who know how to do it, who are working hard, and they harvest everything, and then make him pay a tax. A certain percentage will go to the poor. Like, for example, our government does. You, I earn my income, and then the government says I have to pay income tax, and part of that income tax goes for welfare and assistance and all the different services that the government orders, offers. It would seem that that's more efficient. Of course, that's if people not had their hands in people's pockets taking it away. But at least theoretically, that would seem to be more efficient. Why doesn't the Torah say that? So the, I'm sorry? Teaches integrity. Okay. It teaches integrity. Self-sufficiency. Yeah. So let's, that's exactly it. Look at the second page. This is a very famous page in Maimonides. Exactly. This is a famous page in Maimonides. The Rambam. And it's, it, I'm sure you've seen it, you've heard it. Eight degrees of charity, one higher than the other. Now, if you start at the bottom, the bottom is one person who gives a handout to another person resentfully, meaning, you know, not nicely. And then if you go up, again, starting from the bottom and going up, giving it nicely, even better than that is giving it anonymously because you protect the self-esteem of the recipient. And the highest is to not give charity at all, but give the opportunity for them to be able to help themselves. In other words, see, what's interesting is the Rambam does not say what I what most... Jewish organizations that raise funds say. Most Jewish organizations that raise funds say like this. If you give $100, we'll put your name. If you give $1,000, we'll make it bigger. And if you give $10,000, we'll make it even bigger. So what the message we're giving is we are valuing your donation based on how much you give. The Torah is saying something different. The Torah is saying, how much you give, that's a separate issue. The value of the mitzvah relates to how much self-esteem does the recipient have? What is the feeling of the person who receives it? If the feeling of the person who receives it is, you made me feel like I'm a nothing, you gave it to me in a callous way that made me belittled, then it doesn't matter if it's a million dollars. It's a low level of a mitzvah. You give a person an opportunity to be able to work for themselves, to help themselves, then even if it's much more modest, assuming that's what you can afford, that's a much higher mitzvah. 
the valuation depends on the self-esteem of the recipient. In the case of, it is definitely true that in every society there will be a need for handouts. There will be a need for soup kitchens. There will be a need for people who can't even come to the field to collect for themselves in the corners. That is true. And there are other methods. There's tzedakah, there's charity, there's tithing. There are other ways to take care. But the main method is to try to find a system where people can work and they can then enjoy the proceeds of what they themselves worked for. And here's the thing. If you're watching a field, you're looking at a field, and it's harvest time, and you see all these different people in the field harvesting the crop, you don't know who's harvesting because they are paid by the owner and who's harvesting because they need it for themselves. There's no distinction. Yes, if you're smart enough to know the, where the corner is and who's in the corner, okay, that's a, that's a subtlety. But in terms of the work that's being done, you're giving the opportunity to people in need to be able to act exactly the same, to be indistinguishable from those who are working as employees. And so this is the Torah system of how to be able to provide for those in need. And we see that this is exactly what happened. If you look in the book of Ruth, in chapter 2, what happens is, remember, Naomi comes back, and she comes back with Ruth, and they have nothing. They left wealthy and aristocratic and important. They come back impoverished and with nothing. They need to eat. And so Naomi says to Ruth, go out into the field. It's the harvest time. It's the time of the harvest. And go, and you'll be allowed to collect along with everyone else. And that's how you're going to support yourself. So the book of Ruth, the narrative of the book of Ruth is going to give us the picture, not just of what the mitzvah is in the Torah, but how in a society it was actually practiced. And what we see in the book of Ruth is that this was accepted, this was normal. And because Ruth happened to go to a field owned by Boaz, and Boaz, she didn't know who Boaz was, but Boaz was a relative, a first cousin of Elimelech, of her former father-in-law. And there's going to be a connection that's made, and the connection that's going to be made happens because she's in the field. And he says to her at one point in chapter 2, he says to her, come sit together with my workers, and you can eat together with my workers, and no one's going to bother you. Now, yes, obviously he, he recognized her, and he wanted to make a connection with her, but he was treating her like his, work, like his workers. She was indistinguishable from his workers. And so you see this narrative of how actually in real life this mitzvah was observed and played out, and the role that it has in the story, because that's how... Ruth is going to come to the attention of Boaz because he's working there. That's mitzvah number one. Now, the second mitzvah I want to share with you is another mitzvah. And again, this is a mitzvah that maybe we're not so familiar with because the parts 
of the Torah, the par- parts of God's laws that relate to how to conduct a society, how to arrange a culture, those kinds of mitzvos, how, how to set up a government, those are, the ki- those are the parts of Judaism that we're not so familiar with because they have not been practically relevant for over 2,000 years since we actually did have a government in Israel and since we actually did have a society that we had to take care of. So they're not so well known to us, but these are just as much a part of Judaism as keeping kosher and, and uh, observing Shabbos, etc. Second mitzvah goes like this. Another problem that society has to take care of, every society has to take care of, is the problem of the cycle of poverty. And the problem of the cycle of poverty means that in any society, when a person becomes poor, there are forces at work to make it harder and harder to get out of poverty. It's much, much easier for a person who, let's say, is earning $100,000 to make changes in their life to earn $110,000. That is much easier than a person who is making $5,000 to go to making $15,000. It's the same amount in terms of actual dollar difference, but what the, the effort that it takes and the opportunities that are available are much less for a person who is poor to get out of poverty because poverty is something that reinforces itself. It gets worse as time goes on, not better, as a general rule. So every society that cares about its members, its vulnerable members, has to think about, well, What do we do not only for the band-aid, the soup kitchen, the handout, the immediate need, but how do we start to help people get out of that cycle of poverty? How do we break that cycle of poverty and allow people to be able to be self-sufficient and to have self-esteem and and, uh, a feeling of self-worth, etc.? How do we do that? So there are different ideas in different systems. Different cultures, different societies have different approaches. Uh, One of the concepts that applies uh, in North America and many other countries is a concept of bankruptcy. A person who's under crushing debt under certain circumstances can declare bankruptcy. And what that says is it's a way to, to start over with a clean slate. It's a way to say, here are my assets. My creditors are much greater than my assets. My... I owe much more than I have. I'm going to make an arrangement that the court will approve to satisfy my creditors, and I'm, it's going to give me a clean slate. I can start over again. It's a way to get out from under the crushing debt of poverty. Gives a person a fresh start. Okay, there are other ideas. There's a mitzvah in the Torah. And this is the mitzvah that goes like this. Again, only applies in the land of Israel, only applies when the majority of world Jews are living in Israel. It applied when the Beit HaMikdash was standing. When Messianic era comes, it will apply again, hopefully very soon. And it goes like this. If you own a field, and you sell that field, uh, property, real estate, and you sell that property because you need the money, So, let's understand, in an agricultural society, uh, 
the main source of income is from the property that you own. And in an agricultural society in ancient Israel, the property that you have, you would have inherited. If you have to sell it, well, first of all, you've got to be very desperate because it's the only way you have to be able to support yourself. So once you sell it, you may get some short-term cash, but as soon as that's used up, you're not going to have a way to support yourself. So you've got to be really desperate. And it's just going to make the problem worse. Because as long as you own something, you have a better chance of being able to support yourself than if you don't own anything. So there's a mitzvah that goes like this. If you do have to sell, you have the right to buy back your property for a certain amount of time for the same price. It's called Geulas Karka, the redemption of Karka, the redemption of property. Under normal circumstances, let's say you and I are two strangers under, under outside of Israel or normal circumstances. If I sell something to you, and then the next day I come to you and I say, you know what, I, I changed my mind, I want it back. So, legally, you could agree or you could disagree. I could say, listen, I'll give you the same price that you paid for it. I'll, I'll, I'll reimburse you. You have the right to say, no, I don't want it. I could offer more. I could say, you know, I want to give, I'll give you double, I'll give you triple. And you have the right, because it's yours. Once you buy something, you own it. It's yours. You have the right to say, no, now it's mine. I don't want to sell it for any price. And there's no legal mechanism to force you to sell it, which is... Common. Under these circumstances, in Israel, etc., the law goes like this. If I sell my field to you, I sell it to you because of, of poverty. I sell it to you. If you come and say you want to buy the field, you can say yes, or you could say no. You don't have to sell it to anyone. However, if I come back to you the next day and I say I want to buy it back, the law is you're required to sell it back to me for the same sale price. And that applies for one year. After one year, I don't have the right to do it. So, yes, in a certain sense, it's like a pawn shop with a limited duration. But it's, it's not exactly like a pawn shop because in a pawn shop, if somebody else comes in and buy it, they can buy it. Can buy it yeah. Here... I'm not an expert on pawn shops, so let me. I'm not. Right. I'm. I'm really. It's a similar concept. It's a similar for the. But it's for this reason that we want to encourage a person to hold on to their real estate. By the way, this law does not apply to any movable property. It only applies to real estate, and it only applies in Israel. And part of it is because owning land in Israel is is, is itself a mitzvah. So is this an actual law in Israel now? Now. No. It applied when the Beit HaMikdash was standing, when the majority of world Jews were living in Israel. It is not part of uh, Jewish law today, which is why a lot of us don't know about this, because it's not practically applicable. But the concept is very important. So, in other words, though, here's what it means. What it means, from the point of view of the buyer, if I buy a piece of land and I know that there's a possibility that the seller 
might come want it back within the first year, let's say, I'm probably not going to do many improvements. I'm not going to invest anything on it in the first year because I might have to sell it back. That's true. But it also serves this tremendously important social goal, which is that people should hold on to their real estate because that is ultimately going to be better for society. Here's one more thing. If I sold it and I can't afford to buy it back, there is the opportunity for a relative of mine to buy it back for the same sale price and return it to my possession. So if I have a relative who is able to and who is willing to, that opportunity is likewise there. And that is exactly what happens in chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. Because what happens is as follows. As you will see, and even if you read it once, I'm going to ask you to read it over again, because when you have the background, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot more meaningful. I don't have it photocopied for you in this, uh, in this booklet. So you have to, again, take my word for it. But you, you'll reread it, and, and hopefully it will, it will make more sense. It goes like this. Naomi is going to Naomi is going to sends Ruth to collect, and Ruth comes home and she says, she brings home this food. She was very successful in in gathering from the harvest. And Naomi says, "Where'd you go?" And Ruth says, "Well, I went to this man named Boaz." And Naomi is going to say to her, "Boaz, he is our goel, our redeemer." What does that mean? It means that Boaz, as a first cousin to Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he's a relative, and he is available to perform this mitzvah if he should choose to do so. So that means he has the opportunity to take, let's assume that Naomi owned fields with her husband. They owned fields. And when they left, let's assume the fields were were taken by the court to satisfy their debts. They were sold off. But Boaz has the opportunity to buy back the fields and return them to Naomi's property. So Naomi wants to pursue asking Boaz if he will perform this mitzvah. And that's what's going to happen in chapter 3. In chapter 3, Ruth is going to be the one that's going to ask on behalf of of Naomi, would you be willing to to redeem these 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 uh, these fields? So what I, what I want to show you is the the story, the narrative as as the narrative unfolds, it is making use of these existing mitzvot in the Torah, which were the normal vehicles by which that society took care of people. To, inter- to, to uh, disrupt the cycle of poverty, to allow a person who had become impoverished to get out of that cycle of poverty. Third myth. This one is a little weird. <clears throat> you may have heard of it. There's a mitzvah in the Torah called Yibum. 
Yibum. Yibum means leveret marriage. Lever is a Latin word. It means brother-in-law. And it covers a situation where a woman might end up being married to her brother-in-law. Let me explain the myth. If a man and woman get married, Jewish man and woman get married, they're married to each other. So according to the laws of the Torah, the woman is never allowed to marry her brother-in-law. The man is never allowed to marry his sister-in-law. Even if they get divorced, even if one of them dies, that's uh, a forbidden marriage once you get married. If you look, please, now at the third page of the book. So this is from uh, the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, top of the page. Verse 5, when brothers live together, meaning they're both living at the same time, and one of them dies without leaving any children. So you have a situation, you have a husband and wife, and the husband dies, but the husband never fathered any children. Then, there is the opportunity for the widow to continue a marriage with her husband's brother. And look at verse 6. And in the firstborn son who she bears, will then perpetuate the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be obliterated from Israel. Now, look at this second in the middle, the middle of the page, verse 7. If the brother-in-law does not wish to take his brother's wife, so he refuses to do this mitzvah, then the sister-in-law, the widow, will go to the court and she will say, my brother-in-law refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel, will not consent to do his duty with me. Then the elders of the city summon him, meaning the court will summon him, and if he continues to refuse, then there is this ceremony, and it's a very unusual ceremony, where she takes off his shoe and spits, it's on the ground, but towards him, and then she declares, this is what shall be done to the man who will not build up a family for his brother. Hold on one second, let's go in order. So, you have two options here. You have two paths. Husband and wife, man, man and woman are married. Husband dies without children. So, if there is a brother-in-law, the first opportunity is that the wife, the, the widow, will continue the marriage with a brother-in-law. Of course, that's only if they both agree. You can't force anybody. No, you have to both agree. If, if he doesn't want, or if she doesn't want, then... Of course, you can't do it because 
We never ever force marriages. By the way, just so that we're clear, since the time of the Talmud for the last 1500 years, the standard rule has been, and this is actually the practice, we do not allow this leveret marriage to take place, and we require this second path of this kind of unusual ceremony, which is like a divorce ceremony, we require that it's called chalitza, which means taking off the shoe, and that's, that's practically speaking what happens. We do not have this leveret marriage, this mitzvah of yibum today. But at the time of the Torah, there was, you had two options. Now we only have one option, but there used to be two options. So if they both agree, then they can continue their marriage together as husband and wife. If either of them do not agree, then since they're already connected to each other, they have to have a ceremony that divides them that they can each go their own way, and that is the ceremony called chalit. It's a very kind of unusual ceremony. Let's leave to the side that ceremony for now. During the time of the Torah, a person could have more than one wife. Now, here's the, prob- here's the first problem with this mitzvah. The first problem with this mitzvah is, I, the first thing I said to you is, it is forbidden for a woman to marry her brother-in-law even if her husband dies. So how can the Torah here command a situation where the woman marries her brother-in-law. To carry on the name. Only to carry on the name? Whatever the reason is, but let's just take the action. If it's forbidden, it's forbidden. So that's a pretty serious question. And there are two answers. There's the Jewish answer, and there's the non-Jewish answer. The Jewish answer is given by the rabbis in the Talmud. And the rabbis in the Talmud say, it depends on the situation. If the husband died and left children alive in the world, then it will always be prohibited for the widow to marry the brother-in-law. However, in the unlikely case that the husband died without leaving any children, that's when this mitzvah applies, and yibum, it's not only not prohibited, it's actually a mitzvah. So it depends on the context. That's the rabbi's answer. The Karaites... Karaites were a group of Jews living in ancient times who disagreed with the rabbis about how to interpret the Torah, and they came up with um, answers that are very different than the Jewish answers, and they said, they said, no, that's not the right answer. The right answer is, in the case of the prohibition, that refers to the brother-in-law, meaning the brother of the dead man. Here, when it says brother, it doesn't mean brother, it means relative. Cousin. Some And they said, sometimes we use the word brother when we mean not literally brother, but, you know, relative. So, it's talking about the brother, and for the, a, 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 a cousin, a relative. And for a cousin, there is no prohibition, because the prohibition only applies literally to the brother. That's why this is permitted. Okay, I want you to keep that difference of opinion to the side for a moment. And now, let's talk about this mitzvah. 
What is the purpose of the mitzvah of Yibum? Why would God have given us such a mitzvah? So, it's a very uh, strange thing. If you look just at the verses that we read, you might say to yourself, well, it's in order to perpetuate the name of the dead brother. What does that mean? Well, maybe it means that the widow will continue a marriage with her brother-in-law and they have a child and they'll name the child the name of the husband that died. The only problem with that is, number one, the Talmud clearly tells us that there is no requirement to give that name to that baby. And the Talmud interprets that verse differently. So the Talmud rejects that possibility. There's a, suggested, a suggestion that's made in the category of Jewish mysticism. And it goes like this. Judaism teaches that every person has two parts, a body and a soul. The body is the physical part that you can see and you can touch. And the soul is something spiritual, something that is connected to our bodies while we are alive. But when a person dies, there's a separation between the body and the soul. And the body is placed back into the ground, it's buried, and the soul continues to live. It's spiritual. Jews believe, some Jews believe, in a concept of reincarnation. Reincarnation is a Jewish belief. Now, I will not say that all Jewish authorities agree to it, but a significant number of Jewish authorities going back many, many centuries attest to this as a Jewish belief. We believe that a person could live their life and pass away and God could decide, for whatever reason God would decide, to let their soul come back into another person's body. We call that a Gilgal, a reincarnation. And you will sometimes see in, in certain kinds of rabbinic literature, and of course you'll see it mostly in Hasidic or Kabbalistic mystical writings, that such a person, a certain person, is a Gilgal of some other person. The reincarnated spirit of such a person. Of course, it's the kind of thing you really can't prove in any scientific way. It's, you can't be definitive about it, but it is a Jewish belief. The Ramban, Nachmanides, writes, and others write similarly, that the mitzvah of Yibum is to recognize that if there was a man who was married and died without children, that is an indication that somehow they did not complete their mission in life. They didn't, they didn't do what God wanted them to be able to complete in their lives. And it could be that God will give the soul an opportunity to come back. And that soul might come back 
in the baby that is born to the widow and the brother-in-law. And that doesn't mean you have to give the same name, because we're not really concerned with the name. We're concerned with giving the opportunity to the soul to be able to complete its mission on life. Okay? It's kind of unusual. It's a little esoteric. Okay, but there is such a mitzvah. Now I want to go to one more layer. Let's talk about the mitzvah of Yibum and how it relates to the book of Ruth. And it seems to relate in a couple of different ways. The first one is, let's start at the very beginning, chapter 1 that we looked at last time. Naomi has two sons, Machlon and Kilian. They're both married. They both die without children. So the first thing is, you might think that there's something going on with some mitzvah of Yibum, of leveret marriage, but Naomi says, you may remember the verse, Naomi says, she says to her two daughters-in-law, go home, go home, because I don't have anybody else for you. Meaning, if you're thinking that maybe that there's a third brother, and now there's going to be a mitzvah of Yibum that you should marry the third brother, but I don't have another son. So I don't have anyone else to offer, so there is no opportunity for the mitzvah of Yibum. Go home. One of them does go home, and Ruth stays. So there's clearly no mitzvah of Yibum whatsoever. Of course, like every law, there is the letter of the law, and there is the spirit of the law. The letter of the law for the mitzvah of Yibum requires specific requirements, they were married, no children, there is a brother, they both agree, specific requirements. But what's the spirit of the law that might be extended in the, in, 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 in the spirit of the law? The relative. The relative, exactly. And what might be the purpose of that? I see one more layer here. Remember in ancient times, I'm sorry? And then we have the land that goes back. Yes, yes. I see, remember we're talking about ancient times, mostly in agricultural society. A woman's opportunities at supporting herself were limited. Now, yes, it's true in Jewish law, women always had the right to own private private property, to do business, to work outside of the home, even though in England that only happened in the 1800s, but in Jewish law that's been the case uh, always. But a woman's opportunities were limited in ancient times. As long as she remained in her father's house, growing up as a girl, she was provided for by her father. When she married... She moved from her father's house to her husband's house. She was provided for by her husband. Husband's obligated to provide for his wife. If a woman is married and they have children and then, God forbid, the husband dies. Very tragic. But she will always be connected to her husband's family because she is the mother of their grandchildren. There's a natural connection. What happens when a woman gets married and then her husband dies, and there are no children. Well, in that case, 
she's a little bit vulnerable because she's left her father's home and she's no longer a part of her husband's home. Now, yes, in an individual case, it could be that either one of them or both of them will take care of her, but there is the potential that a woman in such a situation would have no one to care for her. If they owned a farm or whatever, was she allowed to inherit this farm? She would not have inherited it. Because so she doesn't, it, it goes to the husband's family. Okay, so, so, so marrying the brother-in-law is also a way of keeping, so, you know. This mitzvah of Yibum also has a social policy aspect to it. That it creates a situation where a brother, or even a relative, brother in terms of the letter of the law, spirit, uh, and relative in terms of the spirit of the law, could be able to provide a structure for this woman to be able to be cared for uh, um, in, in terms of being married and in terms of being supported. Again, only if they both agree. We would never force it on someone. They have to both agree voluntarily, but it provides a structure to take care of someone who might potentially be at risk, who might potentially be vulnerable. And so this mitzvah yibum has a social policy aspect in addition to the other layers, to the mystical aspect, etc., etc. And that's what we see in the Book of Ruth. What we see in Chapter 3, and you'll, you'll get to this in the reading, what we see is there is the opportunity, not for yibum, because um, Ruth's, Ruth does not have a brother-in-law, Right? Both of Naomi's sons died. There are no other brothers-in-law. But there's an opportunity for a relative. And there's an opportunity for a relative to do two things. Number one, to buy back the fields that belong to Naomi and return them to her property, to allow her to break out of the cycle of poverty, and to marry Ruth. So that she will not be vulnerable, so that she will have a relationship, so that she will be taken care of. And that will be an extension of the mitzvah of Yibum and an extension of the mitzvah of redemption of property. And as you read chapter 3, you will see that that is what is going to come up and you'll see there's a problem and then in chapter 4 that problem gets resolved. And that's what we're going to see. I want to point out one more thing. One more thing for today. I apologize. I didn't photocopy this sheet either. But I have it here. I'm going to read it to you. One of the main themes that we should learn from the book of Ruth is the, the subject of chesed, of kindness, of taking care of those in need, both on an individual level and on a societal level. And there is a lesson, it's a very, very small textual detail, but it is a very powerful expression of the overall theme throughout the entire book. And it goes like this. In chapter 2, 
Naomi tells Ruth, go to someone's field, you'll be able to collect in the corners, and we'll be able to survive on it. You'll bring home the food, we'll be able to survive. So she goes, comes out that she ends up in the field of Boaz. He's very generous to her. He lets her work there. He makes sure she's okay. And he sends her home, makes sure that she has extra food to go home, to take home. And when Ruth comes home that night, Vatomala Hamosa, Naomi says to her, Eifo likat hayom. Where where did you, where were you today? In in whose field were you today? Vatomer, and Ruth answers. Listen to the words. Shame ha'ish asher asisi imo hayom boaz. Now, the translation of that would be the name of the man who helped me today is Boaz. Now, of course. Ruth doesn't know Boaz, but Naomi knows him because it's her relative. That's going to work out in the story. I want to just get back to the text. She says, the name of the man who did this for me is Boaz. That's not what it says. I gave you the, the way you would translate it, but that's not what the words say. I'm going to, let me go over the words. Vatomen, she says, Shame ho'ish, the name of the man, Asher asisi imo, that I helped today. His name is Boaz. Wait a minute. What do you mean you helped? He he let you into his field. He let you harvest the corners of the crops. He protected you with his workers. He gave you extra food to take home. What do you mean you helped him? Says the, our sages say, this is a quote from the Medrash. Greater than what the wealthy man does for the poor man is what the poor man does for the wealthy man. Because she has given him the opportunity to do the mitzvah. And so when a person is given the opportunity to do tzedakah. We don't always feel like this. You know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. But we, the giver is, is getting the better end of the deal. The giver doesn't always realize it. Right. There was once a rabbi, I've said this before, there was once a rabbi and he once came to shul and he gave a speech about tzedakah, and he came home from shul, and he was worn out, and he lay down on the sofa, and his wife said, how did you do? And the rabbi said to his wife, I was 50% successful. I managed to convince the poor to receive. I didn't yet manage to convince the rich to give. (laughs) But I want to tell you a story. This is something that happened to me many years ago, and I can close my eyes and see it unfolding in front of me like it was yesterday. This happened um, close to 40 years ago. I was in Israel. I was a student in Israel, living in Israel. And I used to go on Friday to Geula to do shopping, do some errands, get something to eat. 
And I remember at that time there was a store called Gerlitz. It was like a, um, they served uh, prepared foods, takeout foods. And I remember I was there, maybe sitting down eating something, and the owner, and I, I recognized the owner, a very uh, pious man. And I remember uh, as I was there, uh, a poor person came in and asked for some food, couldn't afford anything, and asked for some food. And the owner went behind the counter and he cut a very big piece of kugel and a piece of chicken and a piece of meat and he wrapped it up and he gave it to him. And I was really impressed that he treated him so nicely and he gave such a large portion and really, you know, a real mensch, a real mensch. The man walks out with his package and the owner says, not really, he wasn't really talking to me, he just like said it under his breath you know, you just said it, but I was there and I heard it. And he said, you know, I feel so bad that he had to come into my store to ask me for it. Why didn't I go out and bring it to him? Yeah, it's an amazing, that's the recognition. That is what it means to recognize that, that the giver is really, is really getting. And, you know, why didn't I make use of the opportunity to, to do an even bigger mitzvah? But that's what the Book of Ruth teaches us, the way that she phrases it. And that's what the whole book is teaching us, that doing an act of chesed, doing an act of kindness, yes, it could save someone's life. It can change a person's life. We're going to see it changes lives. But it does even more for the one who gives.